Hello and welcome to the Swift the SBS podcast. Restrictions across the country have made life a little harder for most. One thing I'm thankful for is still being able to train with friends on Zwift any time of the day. Being motivated by the massive community means there's always someone to ride with and new locations to explore, like the new Japan-inspired Mercury Islands, my personal favourite, and the UCI World Championship courses. Riding with friends makes the training easier and they always know how to push me. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on. Bonjour, bonjour. Buenas tardes. Welcome to the uh, Zwift Cycling Central podcast. Uh, before we start, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash cyclingcentral or log a ride with our friends at Zwift. We have a full house today and we start with the man, not only... Dave McKenzie, how are you, Dave? Uh, look, I'm good. I actually, I've actually had two hours sleep, so I'm feeling fantastic. Um, I've come straight off the um, Camino, um, covered the TT, and oh, gee, what? Actually, it delivered big time. Yeah. This whole it's Vuelta. always a risk. Yeah, final time trials in a, in a Grand Tour, but it it actually it had us on the edge of our seat. So. Plenty to dissect. 100%. And in this uh, podcast today, we will not only just look at the TT, we look at the whole of the Vuelta and maybe the whole of the year as well in Grand Tours. This is why we have a full house and we welcome uh, Gracie Elvin with us. Uh, how are you, Gracie? How are you? Hola, everybody. It's nice to be here one more time. How are you guys? Yeah. Good, we're good, we're good. Good to have you back. Yeah, and then in order, I'll bring them uh, both together. we got Pat Shaw and uh, Simon Gerrans. How are you guys? Hey everyone. G'day. It's great to be back, uh, guys. And uh, you are right, Macca. Not a bad stage. And it's always a risk, the time trial last stage. But wow, what a beauty. Yeah, it did get me on my... Uh, you know what? We've got nervous. heaps of content to go through. So please leave your comments, your message, your questions, whatever you want to throw at us. We'll see if we can go through during this program. But let's have a look at the highlight of this tour, uh, TT yesterday. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And look, the, the big story of the day was all about this man, Jack Haig, whether or not he could hold that podium spot. Adam Yates was breathing down his neck. He actually pulled 25 seconds out of Jack in the first five kilometres. Jack actually then turned it around by the end, effectively a 50-second turnaround. He took 25 seconds um, to the better on Yates and held his podium place. Yeah. And that is really what we all cared about. And then... You know, the battle for the stage was on, and there was still the GC battle. Really, the top two placings were sorted. That was Enrique Mas. Look, he was doing a pretty good time, but um, Roglic was just... He's just incredible, this yeah. guy. He was so switched on, not just to win the Tour, but he wanted to win the final stage. And he catches Enrique Mas inside the last few hundred metres. Look at the way he goes around him. I thought he was actually going to get balked here, because it was really close it was going to be close between himself and Magnus Court Nielsen. But Roglic went around the long way, around Mass. Mass still finished top 10 yeah. on the stage. <laughs> That's what we need to actually say because you think Mass has done a bad one. He hasn't. He's lost two minutes to Roglic. He wins the stage, wins his, what, fourth. This man here, Magnus Court Nielsen, 
He was in the hot seat for a long, long time, and it took the very last man to get the better of him. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about Magnus Court uh, in this program a bit further along, but uh, what a grand tour by these two men, Magnus Court, Nielsen, and of course, Primoz Roglic, walking like the king is at the Vuelta on the red carpet. It's hard to see with a red carpet, red jersey, red shorts. You know, it's red everywhere, but uh, what a Vuelta this has been, and I'm sure you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, first question for you, Gracie. What are your impression after such a good TT yesterday? Oh, wow. What a nail-biter. Um, I had a lot of feels, obviously, for Jack Haig. Um, I'll get to him in a second. Uh, I was really hoping that Magnus Court Nielsen would actually get the win just to say that he could win all different types of stages. But to get second, it's pretty impressive for sure. Um, now, Pat, actually, this might be a question for you. You were teammates with Jack Haig quite a while ago, back in um, Aussie team days. How much do you think that he's had to improve his TT? He wrote out of his skin. I was really glad to be wrong about him. I didn't back him to stay in third GC, but that was the ride of his life. Yeah, look, uh, when I was on the team with Jack, I've got to say, even from the outset, he was an impressive young fella. Uh, always did all the hard stuff, so all the one percenters. Um, everyone would be laying on the couch watching TV. He would be doing core or he'd be stretching or he'd be looking at ways to improve his diet. He's always been that guy that's really bored in 100%. And um, I, I was kind of fortunate to actually experience that with him um, in the domestic uh, years. He was always a very good time trialist, but it's important to know that as you step up every level, as you'd know, Gracie, um, it's another dimension of how high uh, and how far you must improve to be competitive. I think what's really impressive about him is that he rode this Vuelta on his terms. Uh, he didn't really crack. He got dropped at times, but he really just sat in to his mode and at his threshold, backing himself in he could do the three weeks really well. And um, it really is impressive to see him finish on the podium and particularly seeing him come through the domestic ranks of the National Road Series, coming out of mountain biking initially. Um, I mean, hats off to uh, Andrew Christie Johnson, hats off to uh, the team that works with him, Mark Fenner as well, because what they've been able to do with Jack over an extended period of time has been incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah, spot on, Pat. Um, hey, and we need to let you know, Couch Peloton and all you guys, um, we actually didn't get an interview nope. with Jack. And we I weren't, tried. We I weren't tried. provided with one. <laughs> Otherwise, we would show it 100%. Trust me. Um, Gero, how, how sig we know it's significant. He, he, he joins a very select club to, to finish on the podium in a grand tour. But how significant is this for Jack moving forward now in his career? Well, I think for so many years, Jack has shown the potential to, to podium or to perform at this level. And now he's just backing that potential up with results at the highest level over in Grand Tours. It looks like, you know, Baron Victorious, they backed him going into the Tour de France. It didn't work out after a nasty crash there on stage three. Then he kind of went in as a backup plan to the Welter Espana behind Lander. And I guess as Lander faltered, Jack just stuck to his game. He rode consistently for the, for the entire three weeks of the race. And he found himself in that leader, leadership position and vying for a podium in, in the final week of the race. So I think this should just give him and his team a huge amount of confidence going forward for, for Grand Tours to come and, and stage racing from here on. 
Yeah, and I thought what was really nice is the interview he gave us uh, the day before, so yesterday, uh, when he said, you know, mm. it's it's not it's not about the three weeks, it's not about the last six weeks, it's about the last ten years, about the last fifteen years that's been into reaching that result. So we are super pleased for him in that, in that sense. Yeah, he, he look, I don't know Jack that well, but he, he speaks really well. Yeah. He speaks with maturity. That's what I've seen already for a guy who's now sort of. I know he's been a pro for a number of years, but he's sort of thrust. Now, into the limelight, suddenly everyone wants to get an mm-hmm. interview with Jack Haig and find out more about him. And he speaks very sort of measured and and he's happy to talk to the press. You know, some writers um, struggle with that. So it's really nice to no, see. And he's always super eloquent as well. Yeah. Okay, let's listen as well from the winner of the stage of the Vuelta is Primoz Roglic, of course. We'll listen to him and then we'll go back and analyse what this victory means. Primoz. You had not been a sprinter yet in this Vuelta, but you sprinted at the end to pass Henrik Maas. Can you tell us about this moment? Uh, yeah, uh, I am a sprinter. Uh, like uh, at the end, uh, 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 I practiced it already with uh, yeah uh, a little with Rowan Dennis, but yeah, there I lost uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, today I had it. So uh, yeah, just uh, again a super nice day uh, and uh, yeah. Nice three weeks, so uh, super glad uh, and happy uh, yeah, for myself and uh, for the, my guys around and the yeah, whole team. How much did you uh, know the time gaps and how much did you enjoy the course? Yeah, it was hard. Uh, he's uh, the last one and uh, yeah, after all this week, uh, yeah, it was hard, but still, yeah, uh, definitely I, uh, yeah, uh, I knew how, how I'm on the way and uh, also... Still, I enjoyed quite uh, some uh, support and crowd at the road, definitely. Were you interested to know the gaps for the stage win and for the GC? No, I try to focus just on the stage, uh, like, uh, yeah, on the day itself, that uh, I do my best and, uh, yeah, you know, then you see uh, what is also at the end. Uh. Your overall victory is uh, the biggest gap at La Vuelta in uh, 24 years. H- how do you define or how do you compare this one compared to your two previous wins? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's unbelievable. Huh? It's crazy. Uh, like, uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, let's say it like this, uh, sometimes you, you win by a lot. Sometimes I also win by really a little, a little. But yes, as long, I think, as you can win, is uh, yeah, super nice. Huh? Only two riders before you made it three at La Vuelta. Do you realize that you are making it three today? Uh, not really. Uh, like I said, again, uh, I'm not uh, focusing on numbers, statistics and all these things. Yeah, I just go day by day uh, and uh, yeah, try to do my best, enjoy it. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm honored uh, to, to be at that place, definitely. And you are welcome back for a fourth one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Voilà. And I was, of course, Primoz, a Roglic question for you, uh, Simon. How much do you think he needed that victory, not just wanted, but needed that victory for him, for the team, after a couple of Tour de France's where, you know, they struggled a bit over there. Well, I think it shows that Primoz Roglic just takes this all in his stride. Like, he obviously had a, a devastating sort of blow at the end or the penultimate stage of, of last year's Tour de France, and he bounced back and he won the age and then he won the Welter. Uh, this year, he had a, a really unlucky Tour de France as well with a number of crashes and then ultimately withdrawing. I think on the just after the, maybe the first rest day, and he come back and he won the Olympic Games, and now he's backed up and won his third Vuelta in a row. So, 
Primoz Roglic seems like the kind of guy that he doesn't let the defeats get him down too much, but he doesn't get too carried away with the wins either. He just seems like completely even kill. Um, so who knows where he'll go from here. I reckon that he needs to go into the Giro next year, stuff this one up, then he can go and compete at the Tour de France. No? Oh, I got Mathematically, he's sort of yeah. That's sort of good. That should, should be a good deal. Yeah, he needs a, he needs a dud grand tour in order to win one. Might be the only way he can... Can we tell him, mate, we've got the formula to beat this your compatriot. This is it's working, mate. Pogacar, this is how you beat him. <laughs> Go to the Giro, stuff it up, you'll win the tour. Yeah. Uh, Gracie, how, how impressed are you with someone like Roglic and, and what Simon just said? Look, uh, the word humble gets bounced around a fair bit, but he does genuinely seem like a humble guy. We saw how his sportsmanship came out with his disappointment at the Tour de France. He was really gracious as he st had to step away from being able to compete there. And he was really nice to fans. He was smiling along that stage that he was dropped. And we've seen in the Vuelta that he's, you know, managed the highs and the lows. And he's still a human being. We've certainly... People have criticised him for um, the way he's raced in this tour, but maybe he was trying to have fun some days and other days maybe he just didn't want the attention on him. On him. So, Gary, you've been in the leader's jersey at a Grand Tour before. You know what that pressure feels like. Can you imagine how he would be feeling on some of those days being in that spotlight? Yeah, not for a moment. Like there's, there's so much extra stuff that goes with, with leading a Grand Tour. Um, it's the press afterwards. It's the attention all day long. You're being watched every every kilometre of every stage. Um, there's no point you can hide it anywhere in the peloton or throughout the stages. So it is an enormous amount of pressure. But um, going back to, I guess, Jumbo Visma's approach to the Vuelta Espana, the fact that they gave away the red jersey on a couple of occasions um, and had the confidence that Primoz Roglic was going to be able to get it back again really speaks volumes of, of that team and, and how they really approached the race. Yeah, you're spot on, Gero. They, they, I thought that was the smartest Grand Tour they've ridden, actually, in terms of happy to lo lose the jersey. And even when they got it back, they, um, they didn't exactly get on the front or had to get on the front. Hey, um, I think we've got to move on to the polka dots. You've been, he's been nudging me because we all know Christoph is a big fan. Uh, Michael Storer. Yeah. This guy, two you know stage what? wins let's, and the polka dots. Let's have a little treat. Let's go back and have a look at stage seven, which was his first victory. And then we look back at stage 10, which was his second victory. So, Maka, take us through this stage, stage seven. Well, as we know, this this was that sort of first week, super hot weather. You know, big breakaway went away. You can see them pouring water on them. Jumbo Visma actually under a little bit of pressure here. But Michael Storer, in the break... You know, attacked the break in the end, and Valverde. This was actually really sad. I was sad to see Valverde crash out, and such a nasty crash. He was actually a lot luckier than what it could have been. But Michael Storer and his teammates as well. I mean, they were brilliant. They had the goal to get five riders in the move. They got all five. Summit finish at the end. Storer soloed in. This, I think there wasn't a single person in, a, in cycling in Australia that wasn't so happy for this guy, and certainly WA. And this was suddenly, people stood up and said, who is Michael Storer? Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't, and the real hardcore bubble of cycling don't, but there's a bunch of people out there in Couch Peloton, you were probably some of those, that are saying, who is this kid? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, Pat, you, you know him, you, you, you're very ingrained in that grassroots cycling. Uh has he surprised you or as he's now he came of age and you're not even surprised of how big he could become? 
I, I, well, now that it's happened, everyone's going to say hindsight's a beautiful thing, but I think we've been expecting big things from Michael Storer. Um, he comes through the same um, era as Jai Hindley, who's also been mega impressive already. Maybe a little bit earlier than Michael Storer, but they are on a very similar cusp of experience and, and ability for their entire junior careers and under 23. They were really part of that um, model that, that really dominated international under-23 cycling through the Australian team. Um, and, and to be honest, he, he didn't surprise me with his capabilities. What he probably surprised me most with was his execution and his confidence. Um, I guess after you win one, you, you always have a little bit less uh, stress on you. I think his second win was almost more impressive because it was in a terrain that probably less um uh, 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 was less to his characteristics but then we forget he, he only just fell short of maybe a third i mean a really difficult stage finish a few nights ago and he could have easily uh continued on in different circumstances but uh the hunger of the gc group was too too strong and for him to win the dots um really christoph i know it makes you very happy but also just behind me, we've got Simon Clark's uh, jersey from when he won the King of the Mountains jersey in the Vuelta. And I think we should start a campaign and try and get me one of Michael Storer's as well. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a personal campaign. Yeah. Look at Shory. Always, always thinking of himself. I love it. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's, it's funny you said this because Simon Clark is the only other Aussie that's won the Polkadot at the Vuelta. So when we talk about joining a club, he's not joining a club, he's making it a club because before yeah. he wasn't a club. Yeah, that's you know? true. No, no, it's, it's phenomenal. It's, um, yeah. And, and, and Simon, uh, just. On this, actually, how significant is it for a young rider like this? He's leaving the team, we know, but how significant it is for him to having that extra line on his Wikipedia page? He's won the Polkado jersey at the Vuelta. How significant is this? Well, there are so few riders that have actually stepped on the on the podium at, uh, at the final stage of a Grand Tour and present, been presented with a, with a jersey. Um, he's in a very elite club there. And if you look at Michael Storer's uh, Welter campaign, I think his first stage win didn't probably come as a huge surprise. He showed he was in really good form following his wins at, at Tour de Lund leading into the race. But the way he backed that up and got a second stage win and then put for, performed so strongly in the third week of the race to grab that polka dot jersey and carry that all the way uh, to the finish, what which was really, really for me the the standout moment of of Michael Storer's sort of, you know, well, not only Vuelta but career to date. Yeah, and before we say anything uh, more, we listen to him. But uh, Pat, I know you're thinking, and yes, Bardet was happy about this jersey. You know, he, he wasn't a long face. He was happy about this jersey. <laughs> okay, let's listen uh, to Michael Storer. Um, if I'd have said to you at the beginning of the Vuelta two stage wins, three for the team and the mountains jersey, would you believe me? No, never. I would have thought you were joking. I thought maybe one stage win would be possible, but three is incredible. And also the amount of top tens we've had as a team is, yeah, unbelievable. It's been quite a team performance here, hasn't it? Yeah, we've been having great teamwork and yeah, we've just been yeah, building, building each other, helping each other out, and that brings results like this. And your favourite moment? Oh, my favourite moment was probably, yeah, winning that stage and also seeing the success of um, Roman as well on on the stage he won, and then yeah, picking up picking up mountain points as a team is also 
yeah, really good and yeah, I'm happy to bring this jersey, uh, yeah, bring it to the team, this victory. And what now? Now some rest and yeah, then eventually I'll start to think about the final races of the year. Nice, congrats Michael. Thanks. I'll tell you what now. He's adding, he, hopefully he's adding a couple of zeros uh, to the end of his contract. <laughs> Actually, just quickly, Simon, would he have had uh, bonuses, bonus structure in his contract? Um, he's leaving at the end of the year, we know. But would, have, would there have been something in there that activates basically some, some more dollars in the bank account? Oh, that depends how good his agent was, really. Um, some riders will have uh, bonuses written into their contracts based on how many sort of UCI or World Tour points I bring to the team. So if he had something like that written in, um, maybe it's going to be worth something to his next contract. But um, otherwise, regardless of, of his next contract, I think just these, these results on his Palmars, it's going to make him worth sort of more value just for the, from, from here on in, in the rest of his career. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's one key point in everything here. He's talking about the team. And we feel that like DSM are working as a unit. They're always talking about the team. They all go, it's almost a branding. They want to go with Team DSM. But let's talk about another team now. Let's talk about Bike Exchange. We have debated this throughout the Vuelta, but now we are at the end of the three Grand Tours. And Gracie, I just want to bring you here, bring you here on this. Because you wrote, uh, you wrote for for bike exchange, of course, uh, no, no later than just last year. How do you think the spirit is today in the team? I can't imagine it's that great, to be honest. Um, and I'm really keen to kick uh, kick Gary's brains about this team. Um, from my experience, um, you know, the Green Edge team has this great reputation for the the fun team. They've got a great vibe. The Aussie larrikin really comes out, which is a really big. Um, plus for the team in a lot of ways but in other ways I find sometimes the Aussie culture that dominates the team um, makes it hard to get feedback from each other and that was something in the women's team we had to really work on is not always being just mates but being colleagues and making sure we provided critical feedback too when it was needed so Gero you've had a lot of experience in this team too racing with these guys and some of them are still here from when you race with them. Do you think the team cultures had much to do with this or do you think that they're just on an off year? Well, Gracie, it's sort of hard to say whether it's it's a, an off year or an off patch, but I think you're right. I think it's a team that really sort of, it, it builds, you know, when things are going well, they go exceptionally well and there's a really great buzz around the team uh, when things, when they are riding on a high. But when they hit a dip like this, they seem to be really struggling to get back out of this this dip and, and lack of results they had sort of throughout the Tour de France and, and now onto the Vuelta as well. So I think, Christophe, as you said, there'd be, you know, quite a lot of pressure building within the organisation at Bike Exchange and, and I'll be interested to see what they do with the team from here on. There's not that much racing left this season where they'll have the opportunity to turn that around again. So it's how they reset and really tackle the 2022 season. And, and Simon, is it is it a bit of... I'll play devil's advocate, I guess... Um, is a little bit of their victim of their own success. And you were part of that, that big success at that squad. And we talked about it in commentary, Matt Keenan and I, a few nights ago. You know, you've won, the team's won every monument bar one. Yellow jersey at the Tour de France, yellow jerseys at the Tour de France, courtesy of yourself and a couple of others, stage wins, et cetera, et cetera. Podiumed at Grand Tours. Um, so they've won just about everything there is to win. So we expect, we expect success from the team. 
all the time. And and the same goes, I guess, with the women's team. You know, huge success, and we expect it every time. So, are they a victim of that in some in some ways? And should we sort of go a little bit easier? I don't think we should go any easier because you know they're a team. Team sort of Green Edge, Orica Green Edge, and Bike Exchange are always teams that punched well above their weight with regards to the roster of riders and everyone used to sort of go to that team and sort of lift a certain level, I guess, as well. And that lift was always put down to the dynamic and the culture within the organisation. If that culture is, is no longer there and, and that winning sort of, you know, yeah, that, that winning culture, basically, people are sort of going to that team and really stagnating or even dropping back a level. So I think that yeah, they just do need to have a big reset there and a re rethink of their approach and, and how they move going forward and and probably really draw a line in the sand and, and, and start to make a few big changes because it's gone a couple of years now where you'd say the results of the team have been a bit lacklustre. Um, in so many other sporting organisations, you know, that's the trigger point for, for a big shift. And actually, uh, Gracie, question for you now. Where to from now for bike exchange this year? How do they salvage the, 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 the season? Are they focusing everything on Durbo and Roubaix? The Worlds, do they need this? To, or do they just wrap up the season saying, you know what, it was a tough one, probably our worst one ever since we started the team and then start afresh next year? That's a really tough one. And Gary definitely raised a good point of sometimes you just need to draw that line in the sand and whether that's now or at the end of the season is a bit of a moot point, but there's not that many races left now. So it's probably hard for them to pivot and they just need to, you know, keep going. They've still got other guys. This is just the Volta team that we're talking about currently. So there's certainly other guys that have put in different prep for different races. Roubaix is a massive one. Um, Worlds is an interesting one because it's more for national teams, but you're bringing that rainbow jersey back to the team for next year. So it's still important in some ways. Um, I still really want to back Bling for the World Championships. It's a course that can really suit him, but, you know, they're taking Caleb Ewan as well, and you don't take Caleb Ewan there to be a support rider. So I'm not sure how the team dynamic will play out in the national team setting either. So, yeah, I think Green Edge is going to have to do a lot of work in this off-season, and even with their GC riders, um, we see, you know, Damien Hausen and Lucas Hamilton not performing as we would expect in this welter as well. So it's unfortunately Bling's the one that copped it, at the welter, but there's certainly a lot of work to be done for a lot of the riders. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then, Pat, what's your opinion on this, on the whole bike exchange and end of years there's been? Uh, yeah, I think um, for a lot of the season, I think their tactics uh, in racing hasn't been on point, to be honest. I think you have a look at what DSM have been able to do in the welter by uh, basically understanding GC wasn't an option and then making sure they were forcefully represented in the breakaways. Now, I know that Michael Matthews can't slip into the breakaways easily because he's such a, uh, a prevalent uh, favourite in a lot of the stages. But Magnus Gord showed that you can. And um, I think they're very similar riders in a lot of regards. The part on Lucas Hamilton, I agree with Gracie. Um, it shows you the contrast between Haig and Hamilton. They both had bad luck in the Tour de France. Um, and Haig turned into great fortune. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Lucas wasn't able to do that. He still has a bundle of talent, so I don't think they're really um, crying poor in the corner about it, but I think that there are definitely some things that do need to change, and maybe not fundamentally as a culture, but maybe just making each other a lot more accountable for their own personal achievements as well as a team. I think as a team, you back your riders in, 
but the writers must have been terribly disappointed in the execution by Michael Matthews at the end of the stages and in the end results that he achieved for how much work they really had to pour in individually. Um, so, I mean, we'd love to just be the sit on the fence duck and, and just say everyone's done a good job. But unfortunately, it really hasn't cut the mustard with what we expect from, as Gero said, always they've been known as the team that punches above their weight and as an australian and as australians that's something we're renowned for as well a small nation that punches above its weight and um unfortunately the season's not been a fantastic one for that yeah 100 percent. Yeah. you know what i reckon what i reckon we should put shory up as a uh, director sporting <laughs> I reckon definitely. Let's just clip that little yeah. bit of audio. We'll send it through. Get some feedback. No, and I, I say it jokingly, Shuri, but I, I agree with everything you're saying, and I think you put it really well. Um, we'll watch this space. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, Magnus Court Nielsen. Let's uh, let's talk about him because he's one of the stars of this Vuelta, don't you think? He he was brilliant. I mean, there's so many angles to talk about Magnus Court Nielsen. I mean this. He, he's three-stage wins, almost four and almost five. But this was the top Cuyera, uh, just down on the coast there. Hot day in the breakaway. Roglic got to the back of his wheel. That was as close <laughs> as he got. He was the last man standing. Um, my first question to you, Simon, is he the next man to don the rainbow colours? Well, if he continues on with this form, he's a, he's a great chance. And I think, you know, the Danes as a nation, are performing really well at the moment. They were exceptional in the Tour de France, and they do seem like they're a, a nation that can rally behind a rider and, and support that rider as well. So, you know, they won with um, uh, Pedersen a couple of years ago, and, you know, if they get behind Magnus Court going into the World Championships this year, he has to be one of the big favourites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's and then remember where the Tour de France starts next year? Copenhagen. Massive. Nassif, Denmark. Oh. This could be huge. Vinegard, yeah. sheep is they got the numbers, haven't they? Did, did yeah. you did you actually uh, Simon? Did you ride with Magnus Court uh, when you uh, when you were at Greenedge? Yeah, I did. So I raced with Magnus for a couple of years there at Greenedge. I was in the Vuelta team where he won a couple of stages in 2016 there with him. So he's a rider with a great great history at the Vuelta. I think he has six stage wins now at the the Vuelta España. Um, but for me, you know, not only stage wins, but that second place in that final time trial was outstanding. He showed sort of glimpses of, of great time trialling at the Tour de France. I think he was ninth in one stage, 12th in another. Um, pre pretty average opening time trial at the Vuelta. But then after three weeks of really tough racing and, and racing where he was very, very active, um, to finish second in the, in, the, in the final stage was a phenomenal effort. And he performed everywhere. He performed on the sprint. He performed on the uh, as an opportunist. Uh, opportunist. He performed yeah, in a breakaway. He performed in a mountain stage. Performed in a in a time trial. You know what? What, what can a man not do? Oh, there's not much. <laughs> He's signed on for two more years, by the yeah. way. Mm -hmm. So BF would be pretty damn happy at yeah. the moment. 100%. Okay, let's talk about the green jersey, but more particularly about Fabio Jakobsen. I mean, are you impressed with the comeback? This is the this is the comeback stage. This is oh, the one it's, he won. It's we we talked about a point. Yeah, we see him winning. This is his his first stage, and we hit a point. And he said his comeback was complete. Yeah. And so you know, let's not talk about the injury or the accident. Or you know, he was happy to. But I think how can you not? Mm -hmm. Because it is such an amazing story. I mean, you know, there's been riders that have had accidents over the years. There's been some nasty ones. I mean, Gracie, this is exceptional and I don't think we can ever under 
underestimate and downplay what Jakobsen went through. And 12 months later, he wins a green jersey, bunch of stages at a grand tour. It's absolutely amazing. And it's another green fairy tale story after Cavs winning the green jersey in the Tour de France. Um, these are the stories that we love. Obviously, we don't love the crash stories, but the, the aftermath is something that, you know, that makes cycling so interesting. So it's really cool. It's, it's a testament to, to that team about how they've delivered him to so many stage wins. Um, you know, it's the wolf pack and they call it that for a reason. So kudos to Jakobsen. He's um, really done the hard work and he's been super grateful to the support around him, not just in the team, but all of the medical staff and friends and family to get him there. So he was super happy with that first stage win, but he can be even happier to take home the green jersey. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Pat, we've been accused or accused of sitting on the fence a little bit when it comes to, to Jakobson in some of the comments we received. But you we? Yeah, yeah, we? You never saw those? Yeah, Who they are were. they? <laughs> I've got names. I've got names, guys. But uh, I'm not going to name them here. But Pat, you never sit on the fence. So question for you, where does Jakobson sit himself on the ranking or on the power or if you had a sprint with everybody in it? Can, can I add to that question? Good. Cavendish, one yeah, word. Yeah, in one, in one word, Cavendish, you know, Caleb. Where, where does Jakobsen sit in that group? Well, well, I think a sprint is always defined by their lead out, to be fair. And I think that that needs to be taken into account. But he's certainly firmly in the top 10 sprinters. There's different sprinters, the sprinters that can win without their lead out. But um, we really can't undermine that comeback um, because there's a lot of things that that do take place and that's him to have the motivation to come back for a starter, but then to get to the level um, and then to overcome the fear of that occurring again. So some pretty big things there, but we, we haven't seen much of his best yet. He's going to prosper over the next two, three years. So I still see really uh, what Alpes and Phoenix have been able to do this year with Philips and, and also with uh, Tim Merlier as well outside of Matthew Vanderpool is quite extraordinary. And then we talk about another team with Cavendish. I mean, Cavendish was really like that gold nugget that had been covered in dirt for a while. And then someone come across and found it again, polished it up, and he got full return in the Tour de France. I don't know what 12 months time equals for Mark Cavendish. I don't know if he can continue to prosper, particularly now age becomes a little bit of a, a play in it as well. But certainly if it's worked as a motivator for the rest of the Dukanic team, Fantastic. And again, once again, although he's not well liked because of his comments earlier in the year, Patrick Lefebvre continues to find gold where it shouldn't exist. He does. Gary, what do you think specifically on Cavendish? He hasn't, they haven't come to an agreement as yet. Um, what, where, where, where will he go next year? I mean, it's now that, now that Jakobsen's got huge success, De Koenig are going to back him in, surely. Well, who knows what Patrick Lefebvre is going to do next, but history shows that Patrick Lefebvre is really good at bringing a sprinter up to the highest level and get, getting them winning. He hasn't got a history of keeping them within the team once they are winning. So I think there was rumours that, you know, that he'd signed Mark Cavendish on, on minimum wage and Mark Cavendish had some personal sponsors that were paying his way into Koenig Quickstep this year. He's not going to be going so cheap next year. Now he's got those stage wins back at the Tour de France again. So be interesting to see whether he's able to come to an agreement with um, with Patrick uh, Lefebvre to stay on in the, the Kuni Quickstep squad, and then what happens between Jakobsen and and Cavendish moving forward? 
Yeah, absolutely. It is a very interesting... Okay, let's yeah. move on and uh, let's talk about the white jersey because the white jersey has not been worn by Bernal, which is, is a, I think for me is, is a surprise. It's been worn by Gino Madeira. Yeah. And let's listen to Gino Madeira and then we'll talk about his performance in this Vuelta. I had a, I had a really, really good progression already last year. Um, getting a really strong Vuelta last year as well, finishing second on the second last day. And uh, from there on, I had a good winter. I came back um, really into good shape from beginning of the season, starting with Paris and going to the Giro, all, all the things that happened. And uh, yeah, I just took it from there, stay, stay on the flow and uh, enjoy every, every day I have on the bike and uh, make the best out of it. So as uh, Gino Madea Gracie, what do you make of the performance of, of this young man, but also when we look at it, he's been a super domestic for Jack Haig, Jack Haig going onto the podium, but Gino finishes fifth, gets the white jersey. Is that what you get when you're backing up a very strong leader? Well, you've got a new fan in me. He did an exceptional job um, to get that white jersey, but definitely even more so, he can easily be classed as one of the MVPs of the tour this year, purely for his work for Jack Haig. And as Aussies, we were super stoked to see Jack on the final podium. So, yeah, I think Madea just did a brilliant job. He's a perfect right-hand man. He's so young. He's got so much you know, potential to go. I'm really excited to, to see where he goes. Um, but more interestingly, Garo, I know that you had um, Bernal as one of your favourites to win the overall, not just the white jersey. Um, we could also talk about Bernal's performance in this category of white jerseys and also, I guess, Ineos in general. Yeah, well, I think if you look at Bernal, it's a stage that they faltered on a couple of days, uh, just a couple of days before the finish where he lost a significant amount of time. But if he had gone into that final time trial sitting one spot behind Jack Haig, um, he could have very easily sort of overtaken Haig going and, and finished on the podium. So I think a lot of those GC riders were very happy to see uh, Bernal sort of drop out of contention there. Was it on stage stage 20? Um, so, yeah, you do have to look at what happened there. Adam Yates was obviously, you know, he stepped up there, but he was never going to be able to do too much damage in that final time trial and, and move too many places, I think. It's crazy. Hey, and on Madur, by the way, Gracie, I, I reckon you would love this as well. Um, he was giving a dollar yeah. for every rider that he beat per stage, and I think he did 10 euros for every rider he beat in GC. So that's about 140 in GC. <laughs> and he, he wanted people to put in requests on Twitter for where to donate the money to... Um, that's beautiful. To, to, you know, a, a, a sort of good organization it's not bad is it it's so nice when you can see riders wanting to just do that little bit more and give back we've certainly had a lot of aussies over the years and i remember mitch docker a friend of the podcast shaved off his mullet once for charity so you know we love these extra stories it really adds to the tapestry of cycling and i read somewhere it was over three thousand dollars so i hope that he picks a good charity for that for sure yeah, yeah it's pretty cool maybe i should hit uh, dan andrews for growing a mullet maybe he can help me at growing yeah. this mullet anyway we also have to talk about one man is Fabio Aru yeah. we are waving goodbye to yeah, Mr. We Aru are. Uh, I mean he's been he's been quite a good uh, Grand Tour rider he's been consistent he has, he has his ups and downs he's down. one man He's won one. He's won one. <laughs> he only won one. He could have done better. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's listen to him and let's wave goodbye to Fabio Aru. Today, 
to be your, your final day in the peloton. Yeah. What is your feeling about this? Yeah, uh, yeah it's true. It's my last day in the peloton. Uh, but I will enjoy every single day of this stage. I try. I try to do my best like uh, like the other days. And uh, yeah, but uh, it's, it's a bit emotional, you know, for me. But uh, yeah. We'll see after and uh, I can realize uh, in the next days uh, how it's, uh, you know, to stop my career. It's, it's pretty cool. It's yeah. lovely to hear him. And I've enjoyed listening to him in English because mm-hmm. he never I never got to interview him in English um, a few times at the tour. Gero, some may say he's retiring young, but you've been there, you've done it. And, and you've raced against Aru. Give us a little, what insights have you got to him? And also, I imagine when you're content, you're content. And he seems content to me. Yeah, he does seem content. And I think it's really important, the fact that he's going out on his own, in his own terms as well. He's basically made the call. It's like, this is my last uh, last season. This is my last race. And, and then I'm going to go on to do other things. And and just a, like a little bit of background onto to Fabio Aru, he is an absolute student of the sport. You know, I remember chatting with him uh, a few years ago, and he does have impeccable English, and he has done for uh, a, a long, as long as I've known him, anyway. Um, but a guy that was very attentive, a very like very respectful for everyone around him. Um, so yeah, you do have to tip your hat to the results he, he was able to achieve in what felt like a, a short career. But you know, he was racing at the top level for a long, long time. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's to you. He didn't want to speak in English. <laughs> he, probably he probably didn't understand me. He's like, I was oh. probably throwing the microphone in. He's like, "What's this guy saying?" Yeah. Maybe he speaks proper English. You know? <laughs> That's it. He does. He actually does. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about uh, the. Shut up, <laughs> three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. Took nine weeks. Three, with yeah. three grand tours. I know. Together. I know. Come on. Anyway, let's talk about the women's vuelta. Uh, yes, because that concluded as well uh, yesterday. Uh, let's have a look at the last 500 meters of a cracking stage again yesterday. Here we go. The first of the two ramps is coming up. There it is for Leah Thomas. Where is the peloton? Are they already in that corner or are they not? It's going to be very, very close. 500 meters to go. There is the peloton. You have to be among the first riders in that peloton to make sure that you have a chance here in the final 200 meters. Here's the second ramp for Leah Thomas up towards the church. Almost there. The end of the climb is at the church. Ish, oh, she's looking over her shoulder. That's never a good sign. But the camera motor is still with her, meaning that uh, the peloton is not yet there. She has done the climb. How much does she have on the peloton? 200 and 50 million. Oh, there is Lotte Kopecky already with Elisa Longoborghini. Such a heartbreaking moment for Leah Thomas. But it's going to be a sprint between two national champions. Elisa Longoborghini, Lotte Kopecky. And this is, of course, a great opportunity for Lotte Kopecky. Well, she seems to be struggling. But, of course, normally she should win against Elisa Longoborghini. Kopecky or Longoborghini? It's going to be Lotte Kopecky. Of course it is going to be Lotte Kopecky. Of course, he was going to be uh, Lotto Compeki on this win. Uh, Gracie, what did you make of those uh, four four days uh, in La Vuelta and also looking forward of next year, having a full Grand Tour calendar for the women's cycling? It was a great um, Vuelta tour for the women this year in the Cherisit, I can never say that properly, <laughs> stage race. Um, 
So they had four stages this year, which is the longest it's ever been, which is really cool to see. And they were all road stages. And as you saw in that last clip of footage and for those listening on the podcast, it was pretty much the same finish as the men's time trial. So it had a super steep kicker at the end and made for a very exciting finale of the last stage and the tour. Um, and we saw Leia Thomas um, looking like her counterpart, like Lopez going for that final attack. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to hold it. Um, and she was beaten by the Belgian rider Lotte Kapeki, who's just come fresh from the Olympics. And so that was a great win for her. And she's one of the favorites for the world championships. Um, with other favorites, actually, we saw our favorite, Annemiek van Vluten, take the overall for the tour. And in a, a less than... Um, predicted way, I could say. Um, the first two stages, we saw some upset with Marlin Rusa taking the lead on stage one, which looked more like an anemic kind of course. And then there was an uphill time trial on stage two, which was definitely an anemic course, but she took the victory, but she still had a lot of time to make up on Rosa from her breakaway win on stage one. So as we heard on a few podcasts recently, um, Anamik decided that she wanted to go on the attack. And as I've said, if Anamik attacks, everybody better be worried because it really is so hard. And she did it and she took three minutes on everyone on stage three. And yeah, she was able to hold the red jersey in the last stage. So very exciting racing, different winners every day. And that's the kind of racing we want to see. And it's a great lead in to the last few races of the women's calendar this year. Are you still at a stage where when you see races like this, you miss them and you might be starting to think, oh, maybe I miss not doing the Tour de France next year? Is that, or have you just moved on? Definitely, yeah. There's moments that I miss cycling for sure. Um, and especially as there's new races, I always wanted to do Roubaix in my whole career and it was never offered until the last couple of years and it was cancelled both times that I was going to be on the start line, unfortunately. So I didn't get my fairy tale finished, but that's okay. But in other, on the other hand, there's always another race. You know, world championships are going to be in Australia next year as well, and that would be really special to do. But um, as Gero and Pat uh, and Maka, it's, you know, you have to know when to end your career. Um, there's always going to be something that you're going to miss, unfortunately, but you have to be okay with that. So I'm really happy to be here with you guys instead. Yeah, we're uh, happy to have you here. And I didn't know when to end my career, Gracie, but the team that I was writing for did. So, you know, it was pretty brutal. Hey, um, actually, we need to talk about your career in the podcast. It's <laughs> my contract. Hey, but on a, just on a serious note, and, and, and I guess a positive note, Gracie, um, I'm excited about the first women's Paris-Roubaix, first ever, long time coming, well overdue and it's happening. But I feel like there's two key moments now uh, in the next six months for women's cycling. Paris-Roubaix and the Women's Tour de France. You were one of the founders of the Cyclist Alliance. Do you see this is going to be the real game changer for the sport? All these other races we know, they're all important, they're all good. But I just feel like Paris-Roubaix and the Women's Tour are going to be the big game changers. I completely agree. Um, Paris-Roubaix is a dream for most of the female cyclists who love the cobbles like myself. But the Women's Tour de France is, you know, the pinnacle for us. Um, I didn't always agree that there should be a Women's Tour de France because I just thought that it was never going to be run to the standard that it deserved and it would be... Um, uh, harmful to the brand of women's cycling. But now that we see such professionalism spread across so many teams and race organisers matching that professionalism, um, I think that it's going to be a really well-run tour. The coverage is going to be great. And we have 
a lot of riders now that can perform at such a high level that it's going to be really exciting racing and I can't wait to see all the riders but especially the Aussies competing. Yeah, it is. It's, I think it's, yeah. it's, be, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I think that concludes our podcast, guys. I think we're done. I think this is oh, a, gosh. Well, it's been an incredible uh, three weeks. Can I jump in, Christoph, because I've got to make a big announcement today. I mean, it's Jack Haig. He's podium on in the Vuelta. It's also his birthday. Oh, oh. it is too. It is too. <laughs> so yeah, well, so we sure. can't... How we can't... Oh, that's a good question. Oh, younger than me and uh, a lot younger. But, um, but yeah, what a way. He finishes the Vuelta. He's excited. I mean, even if it didn't work out today, it's a party. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's true. Celebra celebrations all around. Thank you, everyone, for for joining us. Thank you, uh, Gracie. Thank you, Simon, and thank you, Pat, for coming uh, today on unwrapping uh, this uh, this old Vuelta. It's been, uh, I think, it's been quite a good uh, good podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having and, me. Uh, thank you, Maka, because we're joking, but it's been a long road together <laughs> this year. It has been a long road. But it's been cool. No, yeah. it has been cool. And if I can just say some quick thank yous, of of course, to our three lovely guests here and all the other guests we've had. To you, Couch Peloton, uh, I might see you before, I will see you before the year is out, but I feel like we're hitting a bit of a crescendo, so you are the best fans, I think cycling has the best fans, you're really supportive, you love our sport, and you back SBS in, and we cannot thank you enough. To you, my friend, you got a little present down here for me, guys. I can't say what it is, but anyway, it's maybe a, I will it's later. a couple of beers. But uh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good Belgian one. Uh, thank you. You do a massive amount of work. Cool. You put this show together. I just turn up literally about a minute before we go to air and I press record yeah, cool. and it happens. So well done and we'll be back shortly. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back very soon in the podcast. And before we go, we leave you with a bit of a best of uh, of this Vuelta this year. We put a, a bit of the best images and some of the good tracks that we had over the year, over this last few weeks. But uh, until next time, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the uh, Zwift Cycling Central podcast. And before you go, before uh, you go, remember you can uh, download, stream or subscribe to this podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash cycling central. Log a ride with our friends at Zwift. There is plenty more cycling to come on SBS before the end of the, uh, the year. So don't switch off. Bye for now. Before we go, a quick word from our sponsors with La Vuelta is all about climbing. So why not try Geraint Thomas's athlete workout? Fun is flying uphill. A great pillar of any climbing is muscular endurance. And believe me when I say that's what you'll get. Testing yourself on training plans alongside world-class cyclists is what makes Zwift so exciting. I can't wait to show my mates the fitness I've been able to build at home. All you need is a bike, trainer and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and I'll see you on there soon. Right on.